Welcome back to the Corey Morgan Show. I'm your backup host, James Finkbeiner. Today is January 24th. Well, I survived last week, so they let me take control of the show again. We have an exciting show for you today. John Rustad, the leader of the BC Conservative Party, is here to talk about his vision for BC and the upcoming provincial election this October. Today is also Tucker Day. The rest of the Western Standard team will be covering the events live in Calgary and in Edmonton. But I'm lucky. I'm here with you guys. But before we get to that, we're going to do check-in on the news. Unfortunately, Dave has lost his voice, so Dave won't be able to join us today. But we have a bunch of exciting content up on the site. It's been a busy day already today, starting with just breaking. This just came out recently. Liberal MP Ken McDonald from Newfoundland has called for a leadership review of Justin Trudeau. Sure, there's going to be a ton of other Liberal MPs that are going to join in on that here soon. Also up on the site, five hockey stars implicated in the Canadian junior hockey sex scandal. They are been told to surrender themselves in an Ontario police station. So uh, we're going to keep an eye on that, see what updates we have as that unfolds. And then an Edmonton fire captain has been charged with child porn offenses. I know the team's keeping an eye on that, and hopefully we'll we'll have some updates there. That's just awful, awful to hear. And then the Edmonton shooter, yesterday there was a shooting at Edmonton City Hall. Details have been slow to come out, and we're, we're keeping a close eye on that. The shooter was wearing a security outfit, and City Hall remains closed right now. And then the the big news of the day right now, and we've got lots of coverage on this, is yesterday, a federal judge ruled that the invocation of the Emergencies Act was unconstitutional. We've got tons of stories up on that. We've got tons of commentary up on that. There's going to be a ton more coming. And like I said earlier, today is Tucker Day. Tucker Carlson is live with Alberta Premier Daniel Smith and Brett Wilson today in Calgary. I'm hearing rumors and I've seen pictures that Jordan Peterson is also in attendance in Calgary. And I I understand that he may also be in Edmonton later this evening. Edmonton, of course, Tucker Carlson will be joined by Rex Murphy and Conrad Black. That's tonight at 7 o'clock. I think there might even still be a couple of tickets available. So if you check that out on Ticketmaster, I'm I'm sure you might be able to snag a seat still. Those are going to be a couple of very exciting shows. Just taking a look at the comments here quickly. Hi to everyone. Thank you for joining. Good afternoon, Alberta. I'm glad to see you guys are all here. (laughs) It's uh, great. So uh, with that, let's get started. Yesterday, a bombshell was dropped on the Trudeau government. A federal court ruled that the invocation of the Emergencies or War Measures Act was unconstitutional. The Liberals, in the middle of a cabinet retreat in Montreal, were seemingly caught off guard. Suddenly, ministers were nowhere to be found. Fitting. That's the same reaction they had to the protest in the first place. But let's talk about that protest. It started with rumblings online, chatter about showing up on Trudeau's door to protest some of the strictest COVID measures in the world. Those rumblings turned to action, and starting in BC, about two years ago, truckers began a convoy for freedom. Like a Chinook wind, the convoy picked up momentum across the prairies, and by the time they hit the Manitoba border, they numbered in the hundreds. Highways were lined with Canadians cheering them on. Finally, they converged on Ottawa, and they made one simple statement. The honking will continue until freedom improves. 
These Canadians, these truckers, these families begged to meet with their elected leaders to make their case that the Liberals had gone too far for too long. Instead, they were met with tear gas and trampled by horses. The War Measures Act was a law adopted by the Canadian government in 1914 at the start of the First World War. Under it, the Canadian government could censor and suppress communications, arrest, detain, or deport people without charges or trials, control transportation, trade, and manufacturing, and seize private property. The act was used again in the Second World War and once more by Trudeau Sr. during the FLQ crisis in Quebec. In 1988, former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney replaced the War Measures Act with the Emergencies Act, an updated law for an updated time. It contains a clear definition of national emergency and outlines how serious the circumstances must be for its use. It defines a national emergency as an urgent, temporary, and critical situation endangering the health and safety of Canadians or threatening the ability of the federal government to preserve Canada's sovereignty, security, and territorial integrity. A national emergency is a situation that cannot be dealt with by the provinces and territories or any other law in Canada. And now a federal judge has confirmed what we already knew. No national emergency existed. Protest at Coots and the Ambassador Bridge in Ontario had already ended, and the truckers in Ottawa had begun moving at the request of police. And still, the Liberals pushed ahead, seizing bank accounts of convoy supporter participants and supporters alike. Canadians from coast to coast were subject to unlawful search and seizure and treated like the very worst terrorists. Yesterday's decision is a start, a glimmer of hope that our judicial system exists to protect the right of individual Canadians. Deputy Prime Minister Freeland says she respects the independent judiciary. Well, I think Jody Wilson-Raybould would have something to say about that. But respect or not, her government will appeal. The quote, the court decision finds in certain respects that the decisions of the government were valid and within constitutional parameters, and in other respects, it finds it was not. That's like saying it's okay to drink and drive because you were wearing your seatbelt and didn't speed. The family you ran over in the crosswalk be damned. What happens next remains to be seen. I imagine a flood of lawsuits from all those accounts, from all whose accounts were frozen or whose trucks were seized. But one thing's for sure, at least for today, there's a very small win, a small win for a small fringe majority. And now joined by the BC Conservative leader, John Rushstad. He joined me earlier this morning in the studio. And here's what we talked about. I'm joined by John Rustad, the uh, leader of the BC Conservative Party. As some of you guys may know, the BC provincial government is going to be headed into an election October 19th. And we're really excited to have John here in Calgary. So my first question, big news of the day. Yesterday, the courts ruled that the Emergencies or the War Measures Act was invoked unconstitutionally. So... Yesterday, you put out a tweet and, and, and you thanked the trucker protesters and the freedom people. Why do you think what they did was important? You know, when you think about our democracy, and first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, when you think about our democracy, there is no democracy without freedom. There is no democracy without freedom of speech. And so what the truckers and the freedom movement was really about was fighting for our democracy, fighting for the very values that we have as a society. And without democracy, those values are gone. And so I just, you know, I thought they did, they did something great. And you look what's going on around the world today. 
look at the protests in Germany, what went on in, in the Netherlands, what's going on in France and in Scotland and Ireland and so many other places. It was all founded based on what happened here in Canada with the truckers standing up for democracy and saying, we think this is wrong. We think measures that are on, it's an overstep of government and it needs to change. So I, I thought that was actually, it was pretty, very brave of them. And, you know, I want to thank them. Yeah. And, and so the protest, as well, definitely all of our viewers will know, it started in BC. And it, it's kind of funny because the Western Standard broke one story and there was actually two trucker protests going on in the Vancouver area at the time. One was about working hours, wages, and, and the other was about freedom. And, and we kind of watched as that protest started as, as a few trucks from the West Coast. And it really started to hit steam by the time it hit Calgary. And by about that time, you could see across the country that there, there was momentum building. But BC actually had a vote to, to condemn the actions of the truckers. And you were, were you the only MLA or one of the only MLAs? The only MLA. Yeah, to vote that you supported the truckers and every other MLA in BC voted to condemn the truckers. So yesterday you called out the leader of the BC United party and the leader of the NDP. And tell me about that. What do you, what would you like to see them do? So I, when that motion came forward, I mean, it was purely political and I just thought it's completely wrong. I mean, they're basically voting against our freedoms and, and democracy. And I thought this is so wrong. So when the, when the court ruling came out, which vindicated the trucking movement, which vindicated and, and showed that what government did was a huge overreach and shouldn't have happened, I thought, you know what? It's time for politicians that made a mistake to be able to stand up and, and own it and just say, look, we're sorry. You know, we apologize for, for condemning the freedom movement. And so that's what I've asked uh, David Eby, the premier of British Columbia, uh, as well as Kevin Falcon, the leader of the United Party and all of their members to do. Just put out a statement, apologize for it, and let's move on. Because, it, you know, I thought it was wrong, but it was it was actually quite amazing to see the United Party and the NDP actually voting against freedom and against the freedom movement. And if, but then again, you know, in, in British Columbia, we're always known for left wing politics, and you know that's why I often say three lefts doesn't make it right. <laughs> no, exactly. It's. It, it it was it's fascinating to see how how many politicians, especially to the left on the spectrum, still even after the ruling came out, they said you know the Canada's national security and our economic security was was at threat, and that's why they needed to invoke the Emergencies Act. Do you think that our national security was ever a threat? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. This was a freedom. This was peaceful. This was a, a statement that people were making about an overreach by government, and you know. The positions I'm taking, which is, I think we need more direct democracy. We need to strengthen our our democracy. You know, I think there needs to be freedoms and freedoms of choice, particularly when it comes to things like like our healthcare and and over you know our own bodies. I'm called a danger to democracy by the leader of the NDP. I'm called you know radical and a danger to democracy, and and I understand why because it's a danger to their form of democracy. They have a very authoritarian approach in terms of how they want to do things. Their policies have failed, so they're coming in and trying to force things upon people, and they have no respect for democracy. In, in British Columbia, we actually have a situation where a sitting a municipal government wants to keep the RCMP as their police force, and government is coming in and overruling them and saying, no, you will move to a, a, a local police force. Mm -hmm. What happened to democracy here? Yeah, it's got the same government that's coming in and saying, we are going to overrule 
the official community plans. We're going to say that there's, you know, say that you can have densification in here. There's nothing you can do about it. And oh, by the way, you're not even allowed to have public consultation. It's not even required. What kind of democracy is that? And I'm called a threat to democracy. It's really quite funny, actually, to see how the left will really stretch just to try to force their agenda on people. It's it's impressive gaslighting. In Alberta, in, in Saskatchewan, there's been a push from, from certain people that they would like to see the RCMP replaced with a provincial police force or more municipal police force. But if Danielle Smith or Scott Moe did what the BC government is doing, there would be outrage. It would be they're, they're just a disrespect to the municipalities. They're, you know, they're the problem with democracy. And you know, here we have, you know, an actual leader that is pushing through something that the people don't want, but you're the threat to democracy for supporting freedom. I, I know it's crazy. And, and this is why I support direct democracy. If, if we're going to do this, like for example, British Columbia, if we were to consider to going to a provincial police force, and there's some that think that we, we should go in that direction. Let's get all the information out to the people. Let's show them what the costs are, what it looks like, what the benefits are, what the what the pros and cons for each option, and then have a referendum. Let the people vote. Why don't we support people in in the decision making? People are smart. They're capable. They're they can they're capable of being engaged, and they want to be engaged. This is the, what we should be doing with with you know big decisions like that. Well, exactly. You can see in Alberta how how the United Conservative Party's pushed more more direct democracy. So, uh, with exiting the Canada Pension Plan, they've they've committed that they're actually not going to do anything until there's a referendum on the subject. So, under you, as you as the Premier of BC, would there be more referendum? Would there be more questions put on municipal ballots and, and stuff like that in the future? I'd like to look at doing that. Now, you don't want to do it for everything. Right. I mean, there's you're elected as a representative. Your representative is to represent the people on the decisions that need to be made. However, when there are big decisions, I think it's important to be able to go to people and have a referendum. So, for example, <clears throat> last uh, last spring, uh, I think it was February or in that area, I actually moved forward a motion in the legislature to say that there should be no new taxes or no increased taxes unless it's done by referendum. Why wouldn't we go to people and say, look, make the case. If we need more money, we'll make the case and say, you know, why are you willing to give more money? Because this is the benefit. Mm-hmm. And if people say no, then government's got to live within its means and figure out, you know, how to balance its books and how to deal with the issues that need to be done. This is the kind of thing that I think people need to be involved in to renew our democracy. Because quite frankly, you know, as, as you see with these more authoritarian approaches, both, you know, federally and provincially, uh, certainly in British Columbia, it's, a, it's an erosion of our democracy and it's an erosion of our freedoms. So that actually comes to another thing, speaking of taxes and, and a referendum on taxes. BC has, I believe, the first and oldest carbon tax in the country. And the cost of living is out of control. Like Vancouver and the lower mainland is one of the most expensive areas on this planet to live Real estate, especially for millennials, is completely out of reach. And, and if you're living or if you're working in Vancouver, in, in Vancouver Metro, you're you're living out in the suburbs and you're commuting. If you're lucky. Yeah. So and and, and that also comes to pipelines and home heating. So would you have a referendum then on scrapping the carbon tax? Would you follow Pierre Polyev's lead? And and if and the national tax was scrapped, would you scrap the BC tax? Or would you take that question to voters? Actually, I wouldn't take that question to voters because, quite frankly, that's going to be a piece of the next upcoming election. If people want to remove the carbon tax in British Columbia, vote for the Conservative Party of BC. We will get rid of it. And so 
Obviously, with a federal government in place, we get rid of it before there's a federal election. They could implement their own federal tax. And I wouldn't want to see that happen because getting rid of a federal tax is far harder than getting rid of a provincial tax. But yes, we're committed to getting rid of the carbon tax. It makes no sense. Half the people in British Columbia today are struggling to put food on the table. And taxing people into poverty is not going to change the weather. It makes zero sense whatsoever to be doing this. It's just a tax grab and for, for governments to be spent on their pet projects. So we want to get rid of it. It's going to put $2.8 billion back in the pockets of British Columbians from last year. And the thing is, when you look at the cumulative, by 2031, by 2030, 2031, the carbon tax and associated taxes will hit be the equivalent to taking $27,000 out of the out of a family of four's pockets. $27,000. I mean, people are struggling, you know, like you said, to buy houses, to pay the rent for food. They can't afford that kind of taxation. That needs to go. So the taxes, reducing taxes would certainly help. I know the carbon tax, it's compounded. It's tax on tax on tax. But that doesn't necessarily fix the housing crisis. And BC's housing crisis is like no other. I don't even know where to start. Where where would you start? Well, you know, since 1991, it's been 32 years, 16 years of NDP and 16 years of BC Liberals. And just about everything you can look at in British Columbia is worse off including housing. Since 1991, housing has gone up by five or six-fold, while wages have doubled. So wages have fallen way behind the ability for people to be able to pay for housing. So there needs to be some dramatic shifts in terms of how we deal with housing. We haven't rolled out our housing policy quite yet, but there's sort of three prongs that we're looking at on, on dealing with housing. The first is we've got to figure out how we bring down the development charges by municipalities. Municipalities need to be able to put in new water and sewer and, and, the, and the services they need for housing. So let's figure out how we support municipalities to be able to do that so that it makes it easier for them to be able to move forward with housing projects. The second thing we need to do is, of course, we need more supply. We need to have that come in. And there were solutions that were done back in the 60s and 70s, which drove a significant amount of rental units to be built. We should be looking at the same type of solutions, right, to, in, in terms of creating that environment so that investors can come in and actually build the units that we need. And the third piece, of course, is on affordability, people's ability to be able to buy the houses. And so we're going to have some very interesting policies that are going to come forward to be able to help people to be able to afford their their housing in, in British Columbia. Yeah, I hear that so many times that the, the so many good projects die at city council. And, you know, every council across the country, especially in the major cities, is is struggling with housing right now, but they're still raising taxes. I'll give you an example. So in in Victoria, there was a a major project which was going to have, you know, commercial on the the ground floor and housing in the the other floors. And they they proposed a five-story building. Well, the local residents complained, saying, no, no, that's too tall. And so they cut it back and forced the developers to go to a four-story building. And the developer said, well... If we're going to do that, we can't afford to put in social housing, this affordable housing for people as part of it. And the council said, oh, that's okay. You can remove those. Like, it's crazy. So we've got a housing shortage. And the problem is because the building's going to be five stories instead of four. And then you've got projects in Vancouver, for example, that take five, six, seven years to actually get approved for redevelopment and done. Like, this can't happen. These things need to be able to go through in a very timely way to be able to drive the investment and get these projects going. And so it's, there's big shifts that are needed. Government in British Columbia has come in and said, well, we're just going to force councils to do things a certain way. I'd much rather work with councils and find ways to be able to set the stage so that these decisions become easier and they can get done. Absolutely. Just 
eliminating red tape in the in the process would would speed things up. But eight years is is out of control. We don't need housing eight years from now. We need housing two years in the past. Like That's we, right. we need to or, catch up. Or even ten years in the past when you look at the demand. I mean, especially with our population growth with immigration, it's 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 crazy that we're bringing people in with no place for them to live. Well, we have no place for them to live, but now we're also bringing in an aggressive amount of foreign students. And I, I seen something on your Twitter about this. So you're talking about capping the amount of foreign students that would be admitted into BC schools then. Well, what I'm actually looking at is, you know, Quebec has taken control of its own immigration. Mm-hmm. I think British Columbia should be doing the same thing. We should be looking at how we control the immigration that comes in to make sure that we're getting the skill sets we need. We have shortages, of course, in healthcare, mm-hmm. in education. We've got shortages even with truck drivers, right? Let's make sure we're bringing in people with the skill sets that can that match what we need in our economy. Uh, plus, obviously, room for others to come in. You want to be able to be the land of opportunity, of course. But why don't we take control of that? And, and if we can't get the same sort of rules as Quebec, maybe we can just do it as 100% through what we call the provincial nominee program. But that also includes students. Many, many students come into the country to get an education, but also as an opportunity to be able to get a job and maybe have an opportunity to, uh, to immigrate into Canada. And that's good. I mean, like I say, I'd like us to have that opportunity. But we actually have some facilities that are one-room colleges where students come in, register, and then they go directly into the workforce. Mm-hmm. And so that's not only abusing the student in terms of coming in, but it's abusing the process and, and opening up for immigration sort of through a back door without the kind of filter and process that should be done. And so I look at that and think we need to have better control of what's going on with that. Absolutely. So yeah, speaking of healthcare, I, I, I find this, it's not amusing. It's actually, it's terrifying, but the BC NDP has gone one direction and the Alberta UCP has gone an opposite direction, but they are tackling nearly identical issues, especially in rural areas with rotating hospital closures, ERs being shut down, shortage of family physicians, pretty much everywhere. You can take the headlines and you can cross out Alberta and write in BC. But the NDP in BC has decided to double down, spend more money, change nothing, and Alberta's gone a different direction. AHS has basically been split up into four different areas. They've picked four different areas of focus, and they're expanding access to family physicians by allowing nurse practitioners to to treat in family like general practice settings, and they've put an aggressive amount of money into healthcare and addictions. BC, on the other hand, has gone the safe supply and and free crack pipe route. So, what where where would you change that? What what exactly? What direction would you go? Well, have we got an hour to cover this because it's a big topic? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so I'll, I'll just touch on a couple of couple of things. First of all, safe supply and decriminalization has been a complete failure. British Columbia now, according to some experts, has the highest level of highest uh, number of addicts per capita in North America. So clearly what we are doing is not working. It is failing. We need to take a different approach. And I like many of the things that Alberta is doing around that. So we need to be looking at, at this different approach in terms of how we deal with addictions. But when it comes to healthcare, there was a court case that went through about a year ago, a year and a half ago, where the government essentially was arguing that the system was more, more important than patient suffering. And the worst part is the judge agreed. Patient suffering and, and patients should be the focus of healthcare. So what we need to do is actually we need to look at our system and think, how do we improve this? How can we how can we change this? And throwing more money is not the answer. 
There's only one other country in the world, as far as I know, that even comes close to following the healthcare system we have, and that's North Korea. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, that's not a model I want to follow. We need to be looking at what Europe's doing and what, what places like Australia are doing. We need to have a universal healthcare system that is delivered by both public and private sources. Mm-hmm. It's the only way that we're going to see the kind of improvements and actually create a better morale in our healthcare system so that we can attract professionals. Mm-hmm. So, especially the the Scandinavian com- countries, they have a very interesting mix of public-private delivery. And, and essentially, if, if the public system is unable to help you within a reasonable amount of time, your public dollars, you then take them to a private clinic and you can get the treatment. So, you know, Alberta and BC have this weird relationship where all the Albertans have to go to the Canby Clinic to get treatment and all the, the BC folks, they got to come to Calgary to the different clinics to get surgery. So would you be working with Saskatchewan, Alberta, probably Manitoba at coming up with a plan that, you know, if somebody in BC needs a hip surgery and they can get it done in BC in a private clinic faster, those public dollars, are they going to follow that patient to that clinic? So that's that's what we're looking at. We're, we're going to actually put together a, a proposal you know, as part of our platform going into the 2024 election here. That's going to be talking about how we can change and how we can create that kind of a model. Now, we may run afoul with the Canadian Health Act. And so that's something that we're going to have to deal with. And certainly we're going to be looking at, at partners, people like you know Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, New Brunswick, right? Any of those four provinces that have these same problems that would like to have this change. But the key in doing this is it has to be universal. So it has to be available regardless of where that source is. And we should be using whatever sources available to be able to reduce the wait times for, for patients. Last year, I think it was the last number I saw, about 17,000 people in Canada died waiting for diagnostic services and surgeries. I'm sorry. That's a completely unacceptable. At that rate, just on a population base, and we can't get the numbers in BC because they won't publish them, we're seeing about the same number of people die, if not even more, waiting for diagnostic services and surgeries as are dying from the opioid crisis. And nobody is even talking about it. It's completely unacceptable. Our system's broken. It's in a crisis. We need to be able to be brave enough to have a conversation to say, let's do it differently. Let's improve it. Absolutely. AHS Alberta actually doesn't publish those numbers either. We don't know how many people are actually waiting on the or dying on the waiting list, waiting for treatment. We are just about out of time, but I have one last question. We've actually seen a party come from third place and win before. Alberta, the NDP did it. Nenshi, when he won as a mayor here in Calgary, right now, I think the last poll I seen, you guys are sitting in second place. And, you know, how do you carry that momentum into October? Well, obviously, there's a lot of strategy that has to go in around carrying that forward. But people in British Columbia are hungry for change. And what we say is it's not about being conservative or liberal or NDP or green. It's just standing for what's right fighting for the average everyday person, and just being straight up with people. People from across the political spectrum are an interest in what we're doing. And we saw a poll before Christmas that showed the Conservative Party in BC is actually, there's 56% of the people in BC are considering voting for us, mm-hmm. which is a stretch because the last time the Conservative government, us Conservative Party in British Columbia formed government was 1927. Mm-hmm. We're the oldest party in BC's history. The last time we even elected anybody was the 1970s. And so we're coming really completely out of the wilderness on taking the stage here in British Columbia, but we're putting forward a a great team. We're going to have a very good strategy and and lots of very interesting uh, platform pieces to try to attract that vote in British Columbia. And I think 
quite frankly, we have a path to be able to win government in 2024. It's going to be a very interesting year. Yeah, I'm excited for sure. We're definitely going to be paying attention to it at the Western Standard. I know our members are going to be paying attention to it. So where can they find some more information on you, the party, and 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 get your platform before the election? So the best thing, best place to go right now is to conservativebc.ca. That is where our candidates are being placed and, and we're, we're fleshing things out. We've got a lot of ideas on there, but we are obviously holding back exactly what's going to be in the platform uh, so we can use that for the tools we need to do to attract the attention that we're hoping to be able to have in British Columbia. But it's a, it's a good place to come to st- as a starting point to follow and get engaged. For anybody that's in British Columbia that would like to be part of it, please sign up and become a member. Obviously, you know, we're looking for donations, you know, building up the party and that side of things. But I really encourage people to get involved and volunteer. Democracy is made by those who show up. So if people want change, get engaged, get involved, help us bring the kind of change that you want to see in British Columbia. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks. A big thanks to John for joining us live this morning in studio. We wish him luck in, in his upcoming election. And, and with that upcoming election, I just wanted to touch on a couple of things. December 12th, Preston Manning wrote an opinion piece, and I, and I just want to bring everybody's attention to something that he said in here. Far too many Calgarians completely ignored the last municipal election. That resulted in the election to the office of the current mayor. The 46% voter turnout in 2021 Calgary municipal election was even lower than the 58% turnout in 2017. With less than half the eligible voters participating in 2021 and the mayor receiving 45% of the vote, this means she occupies the office with the support of only 21% of the electorate. Now, we just talked about the BC election there and the platform of the BC conservative leader. And I see a lot of people in the comments saying that, you know, things never change. And a lot of the reason why things never change is because people don't show up to vote. If you take a look at uh, some of the polls, especially the federal polls in BC, a lot of people have changed their mind. They've changed and moved away from the liberals and, and they're, they're heavily supporting Pierre Polyev. And if you look at the polls, the BC Conservative Party is on an upwards trajectory that we haven't seen a BC Conservative Party have that much momentum in, in years and decades. I think this is a really good and exciting opportunity for the province, even just to have a Conservative government as the official opposition in, in such key area. You know, if people show up and vote and they vote what they want, you're going to get, you're going to see change. And the even, even the NDP losing 10 or 15 seats in BC, you know, that's going to put them on notice that folks are done with, with the NDP's, you know, just lack of results. Like we talked about the Vancouver lower mainland real estate is some of the most expensive real estate on earth. When you look at healthcare, they have the exact same problems that Alberta and Saskatchewan are having with rotating ER closures and just a shortage of family physicians and rural hospitals being shut down. <clears throat> and I and I also see a lot of people saying that the interior, it, it's kind of like Canada. When the voting's done on the East Coast and once you've crossed Ontario, the rest of the voting doesn't matter. And a lot of people feel that way with BC, that the lower mainland's going to decide who the, the government is and the interior, you know, they don't matter. Uh, yes, but 
the more people that show up to vote, the more you can gather volunteers, the more effort you can put behind it, the greater momentum you can have. Look at what happened even with the little liberal government dropping the, the carbon tax on home heating oil. That was just the East Coast. They picked up the phone, they called their MPs, they put them to task. They said, we won't vote for you if you don't make this change. And the change came. Now, obviously, not much has changed for the West. Alberta doesn't have enough liberal MPs to make a difference. And we've only got two of them. But it, it's important to reach out to those MPs and say, like, look, look at what's happening. And that actually brings me to the next story that I want to talk about here. Linda Slobodian, she's got a column up on the site right now. And, and this story is just, it, it's crazy. A 17-year-old man's accused of assaulting a 62-year-old woman. And he was already out on bail. He was out on bail on three different assault charges with a weapon, common assault, and several breach of conditions. Um, this is another liberal problem. This has come directly from policy from the Trudeau government. And we have two liberal MPs in Alberta. We could pick up the phone and, and we can say, we need to make change. And we're seeing that this is affecting every aspect of society right now. More and more people are being assaulted by people out on bail. I think there was a study that came out in BC that almost all of the crime was being committed by just a handful of people. And we arrest them, we hold them, and we let them go. And, and many times they're committing another crime the, the same day. We, we need to make that change. We need to see people held responsible for, for their actions. And this, this story, it, it's, it's devastating. I really encourage you guys all to go read it. It's a great piece by Linda. She's got the exclusive interview with, with this victim in the first place. It's, it's important. It's, it's really important that, that Canadians start getting active in our democracy. Call your MPs, you know, join a party, donate, buy a membership, get, get involved. You know, it's like the, the coaches say, get off, get off the bench and get in the game. <clears throat> and I was looking at the comments here as well. I'm glad that so many of you joined me today. You know, without Corey here, it's 50-50 that anybody's going to show up. So thank you very much to, to Bill. I seen your comment earlier. Let me just find it here. Or Bruce, sorry. I enjoy the Western Standard News at noon. Very good to hear news that is actual news and not propaganda spewed by the mainstream media. Well, we appreciate it too. We appreciate all of our members. We were really excited to give out a bunch of tickets for Tucker Carlson in Calgary and Edmonton. And the more support we have from our members like you, the more events like that we're going to be able to do in the future. So if you know anybody wants a membership, you know, encourage them to sign up on the site. It's uh, $10 a month or $100 a year. And we hope that as we continue to grow, we can do more and more for you. Uh, now, one of the other things that I've just seen here in the comments is about recall legislation. And, and I agree, but there's a couple of different things that, that we need to take into account. So Medicine Hat, there was a, an attempt to recall their mayor there. And the bar has been set so high that, that it's nearly impossible. And, you know, I'd like to see change to that in Alberta. But at the same time, we can't just constantly elect, recall, elect, recall, elect, and recall. So there needs to be a bar there. But perhaps, in, perhaps the the bar should be a little bit lower. And then I'm just seeing here, it looks like friend of the show has said, can you imagine if James and Corey were on the show at the same time? Mind blowing. <laughs> or just a lot of old miserable guys. 
Corey will be back after next week. He's luckily getting to enjoy a vacation. I'm jealous. I don't know how you get vacations around here. Every time I put my days off in, I get told that I have to stay at work. And finally, this this story out of Edmonton. And this story is bizarre. Yesterday, a man wearing a security vest entered into the Cal- or Edmonton City Hall and started firing shots off. And, and, and threw a Molotov cocktail. In the end, he, he seemed to put his, his weapon down and an unarmed commissioner, City Hall security guard, was able to take that man into custody. Now, obviously, the investigation's still ongoing, but, you know, that's really terrifying. And I, I think it's actually really sad for not just for Alberta, but for Canada. You know, it's been a very interesting last three to four years in, in, in this country. You know, we've had the trucker protests. We've had Canadian citizens treated like terrorists. We've had terrorists shout death threats at police and seen no arrests. And then we have this. And, you know, there is something that, that needs to be said is that if you don't show up and vote, the same people are going to continue to be elected and they're going to continue to make these bad, poor decisions that are that are at odds with the electorate. But violence is just not going to solve anything. If anything, violence is going to make them buckle down and, and stick with really bad decisions. Not only that, but, you know, city halls are a place of public gathering. There has been protests outside the Calgary City Hall, in the Calgary City Hall. It's a place for community events. I would imagine the Edmonton City Hall is the exact same way, or the legislature, or the House of Commons. And, you know, entering those places with a weapon, it's not about the politicians. It's not about the people working in those buildings. It's about our democracy, and it's about our society in general. So, you know, I'm glad that this guy arrested, was arrested. I'm, I'm interested to see what his, his reasonings are. And, and there's no reason, there's absolutely no excuse for what he's done. But, you know, this is, it, it's going to be sad. And now we're going to see these buildings have, you know, probably increased security. There's going to be more scrutiny on the public, which is unfortunate because that's where the people need to go to be able to, to address their politicians. <coughs> Oh, I just seen another comment here about PayPal. So this is actually one of the things that I can address. So to close out the show, I'll talk about some of the changes we've made here at the Western Standard. Back in October, we released a new website on a new platform. The system that we use, it's it's called Quintype. It's a great program. We've got way more flexibility on it, but the default payment provider on it is PayPal. So I just want to let all of you guys know that in the next week or so, we will be switching to a different payment handler. We've actually just had tons of issues with PayPal, with credit cards not working properly, with people just having issues with the system in general. So we're making some pretty big changes there. Another thing that popped up is our comment section. And I I sent out an email to everybody and I said, our comment section is moderated by AI. Well, let me explain. The AI that we use is akin to spell check. All the system is supposed to do is look for foul language and inappropriate words, and then they're supposed to flag it to, to our staff. And then our staff manually reviews that and removes it. Unfortunately, the list of words that we provided into the system aren't working properly and it's blocking words like mother it's blocking words like job so we're actually switching to a new comment moderation system there will still be words that are not allowed on the site 
obviously there's inappropriate language and, and we have a responsibility to make sure that that doesn't make it onto the site. But the system will be, you are mostly moderated by other users. So if there's something on there that isn't appropriate, you'll be able to flag that. It'll notify us right away and we'll be able to take that down. <laughs> so <clears throat> that's just about all we have time for this week. And then just a reminder, westernstandard.news slash subscription. Like I said earlier, it's $100 a month or $100 a year or $10 a month. And we would love for you to sign up. We should have a bunch more giveaways coming up in the next year. And, you know, we're, we're looking at some more expansions here. We are, we're pretty excited about the future and we're pretty excited what we have in store for you this year. So that's it for the Corey Morgan Show this week. I'm James Finkbeiner, and we'll see you again next week. Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago. These guys are on the front lines helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada, and more importantly, educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. You become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny.